And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Okay, here we go. You guys ready for a Bible study? Grab your, your Bibles. Grab your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 10, we'll start reading at verse 38. We'll work our way all the way to chapter 11. 11 all the way to 11, 13. This is our Certainty in a World of Doubt teaching series. We're gonna talk about anxiety here this morning. Oh boy, I love it. And what I'd like to do is, uh, I have a stress diet I'd love to share with you. This is something that I, I use that helps me when I'm stressed out because you, you all know that diet plays a role in our, our ability to deal with anxiety and stress. And so, don't need to write this down, it's easy to remember. But let me walk you through this diet that I use. Stress diet, first of all for breakfast, a half a grapefruit, one slice of whole wheat toast, and eight ounces of skim milk. For lunch, four ounces of lean broiled chicken breast, one cup of steamed zucchini, zucchini and uh, one Oreo cookie and herb tea. Mid-afternoon snack, the rest of the package of Oreos. <laughs> I haven't finished yet. One quart of Rocky Road ice cream, one jar of hot fudge. For dinner, two loaves of garlic bread, large pepperoni and mushroom pizza, one liter bottle of your favorite soda, three Milky Way bars, entire Sara Lee cheesecake direct from the freezer. Always remember, stressed, S-T-R-E-S-S-E-D, spelled backwards, is? That's right. Would you bow your heads with me for closing prayer? <laughs> Some of you started, you're going to, we've got more. we got more. I got you on that one. But uh, here we go. So let me, uh, lest we miss the forest for the trees as we work our way through the gospel of Luke, is that, uh, let me kind of bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us thus far, and if you, even if you have, chapters one through eight are all about who Jesus is. Like, how do we know there is a God? How about this one? He showed up here through Jesus, and we've got writings, eyewitness accounts. And so the first eight chapters is just giving us that. Uh, chapters one through eight, who is Jesus? God in the flesh, son of God, came to redeem us, restore us, reconcile us to the Father, pretty amazing. And then in chapters nine through 18, Jesus begins to head towards Jerusalem where he's gonna lay down his life for us. And, he, and, and in that context, he's teaching his disciples on how to follow him, how to be a Christian. And so, and so chapters one through eight, all about Jesus, chapters nine through 18 is all about what it means to follow Christ. Now. Last, two weeks ago, as we were heading into chapter 10, where that is the sending out of the 72, we found out that we are called to be gospel messengers. We titled that weekend's message, Contagious. And the reason why we did that is because when you live in the reality of his love for you, you will become contagious with a love for him. Your love for him will be contagious with those around you when you live in the context of his love for you. So God has called us to be gospel messengers, and last weekend we talked about, and this is part of chapter 10 of Luke, uh, we looked at the, the Good Samaritan story and that we are not only called to be gospel messengers but gospel neighbors, and we titled that Irresistible Grace. And it's when you become recipients of God's irresistible grace, you become a dispenser of that irresistible grace. So let me kind of summarize that. So the proclamation, demonstration of the gospel is what Christians are all about. 
That's what we're all about, proclamation demonstration. And to do that successfully, we must know how to deal with our, our anxiety, our stress, our worry, and keep ourselves emotionally healthy and wealthy. Now, as I studied this and looked into this, Americans are a pretty anxious bunch of people. I don't know if you know that, but yeah, we're pretty stressed out. Nearly one in five of us has an anxiety disorder. We spend over two billion a year on anti-anxiety medications. Two billion a year. Now, look at your sermon notes, part of the intro. Here's my question for you. As a Christian, as a follower of Christ, does your life portray the love, joy, peace, love, joy, peace that you proclaim anyone can experience through the gospel? So, so the very gospel that you are proclaiming to others to come and experience, are you, are you portraying that? Are you experiencing that? Now, there are plenty of good reasons in our modern world to be anxious. There's, there's no doubt a lot of stuff to make us anxious. But as a Christian, you have even better reasons not to be anxious. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, the cause of anxiety, the cure to anxiety, and then the confidence for overcoming our anxiety. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's, would you bow your heads with me? Once again, we're going to pray, ask for God's help, we'll, and then we'll read our text and unpack these notes. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. And as it tells us in Psalm 46, 1 through 2, you're our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I want you to just, just for a moment, just take a deep breath. Exhale. This is a good place just to kind of let go of the stress this morning. Because our God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And God, because of that, we don't need to be anxious. Yet too often we are stressed, we're filled with worry and anxiety over a number of things. And so we pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, as it says in Psalm 55:22, teach us how that we can cast our burdens upon you, and you promised us that you would sustain us and not allow us to be shaken. God, we want to learn how to do that so that our lives will more and more portray the gospel we proclaim. We ask these things in, in your son's glorious name, and everyone said, amen. So let me read through the text. I love the text. This is a fun story, actually, the first part of it. So it's about Mary and Martha, starting in verse 38, chapter 10. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Notice this is her house, okay? <laughs> it's kind of important to, to keep that in mind. But welcomed, her into, welcomed him into her house, and, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. I love that. That's such a great, that's so, uh, she's, she is the, Martha is the quintessential control freak, okay? I mean, isn't she? She's the epitome of a backseat driver. I mean, if she's, because I mean, when you look at the context, she's bossing the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. She's bossing him around. You need to do this, and look what she's doing to me. And I mean, if, if, uh, 
If Jesus, Martha, and Mary are on a road trip to California for summer vacation, <laughs> Jesus is getting kicked out of the driver's seat right here, okay? That's what's going on. And so you get a little bit of this, uh, this context here, and you can see that she's a little bit of a control freak. By the way, we're all control freaks. We just do it in different ways. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But notice Jesus' response to her. But the Lord answered her. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now, I've often, uh, I've taught this, just this text and finished it right there and taught on that, and you can certainly do that, but I, I believe that actually the next part of this as we head into chapter 11, Jesus is gonna show us how to sit at Jesus' feet and how to deal with anxiety in our life, how to deal with worry, anxiety, and stress in our life. And he's gonna teach us how to pray and how to connect with the Father. In verse one of chapter 11, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now this is what's so cool about this story, I love this, because Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He knew how to connect with the Father. And his disciples saw that, and they're thinking, oh my goodness, we want what you have. We want that same connection. So Jesus is teaching them how to do that. And he's also showing us what it means to sit at his feet. What does it mean to sit at Jesus' feet? And he says, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, which means Daddy. Speaks of intimacy. By the way, this is the abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer. The fuller version is found in Matthew 6, chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And what you have in verses 1 through 4 is really the art of prayer. And then in verses 5, all the way to the end of our text, verse 13, you have the heart of prayer. And so he says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. That's the art of prayer, now the heart of prayer. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence. What is that? That's, that's persistence. It's almost this pesty persistence. It's a little bit like what our kids or grandkids do when we take them to the shopping center, and we walk down that aisle we should have never walked down, which is the toy aisle and they can't get it out of their mind that they want that toy, they've always wanted that toy. They didn't even know that toy existed until we walked down that aisle. <laughs> and so what do they do? They, they, they have this pesty persistence until you uh, threaten them or, or buy them the toy. And, uh, and so this is that idea here. There's this pesty persistence, but he's trying to make a point here he says, yet because of his impudence or his pesty persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, he's gonna help us to understand that more clearly by saying these next words. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and to the one who seeks finds, to the one who knocks, 
it will be open. And literally in the Greek, what that means is that ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. And what, what Jesus is wanting us to understand here as it relates to the Father heart of God towards us is that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but it's laying hold of his willingness. It's almost like he's saying, don't you see what he wants to do in your life? Keep coming after him. Be persistent. Be even pesty as a little child. And he goes on to explain that a little bit more. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will... uh, If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? You hear what he's saying there? He's just saying, man, do you you know the Father heart of God? He's not going to give you a scorpion. He's going to give you good things. He wants to give you good things. He longs to give you good things. That's the Father heart of God. Then he helps us to even understand it more clearly. He says uh, in verse 13, if you then who are evil... Oh, by the way, you know you're evil, don't you? Isn't that interesting how Jesus says that? He just says, yeah, you guys are evil. You're sinners by nature and by choice. That's what he means by that. And though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more, how much more does your Father in heaven want to give good things to you? In fact, he says, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That's pretty significant that he would say that. The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This is the word of the Lord to us. Okay. We got some work to do. You guys ready? Let's dive into the notes here and let's unpack this text that we just read. And so first of all, the cause of anxiety, and we, we look at, we see the cause of anxiety found in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42 in the Mary Martha story. Now, there are no bad emotions, just emotions gone bad. Our anxiety is, is part of our emotional makeup, and it's okay to have some anxiety. It becomes bad when it becomes inordinate anxiety. And of course, it can really depend on what we're anxious about and how anxious we are. So you gotta certainly look at why am I, why does that make me anxious? That shouldn't make me anxious. There's some things that shouldn't make you anxious and they make us anxious, so you need to be aware of that. But also, how much anxiety you carry. And we're talking about inordinate anxiety, unnecessary anxiety, excessive anxiety. And, and so that's what you're looking at. Inordinate anxiety can be very complex. And it can be the result of any one of these or a combination of all three. It can be body, soul, or spirit. We're, we're multidimensional image bearers of God, and so we do not want to be reductionistic in our understanding of dealing with anxiety. It's not, it's not simple. It's not a simple uh, thing to deal with our anxiety. And, and so your body can certainly contribute to your anxiety. Diet, exercise, sleep deprivation, brain chemistry... That needs to be taken care of. Of course, that's your body, but the soul has to do with your temperament. Certain temperaments deal with anxiety better than others. You got past hurts unresolved that can pile up in your life that can create anxiety. Even the events of life, how you evaluate the events of life can stir up and and contribute to your anxiety. And then you've got got the spirit part of you, which is your spiritual health, spiritual disciplines, your connection with God, and then obviously there's also the demonic realm that can be working. We have an enemy that's gunning for us. It's coming after us. So what I want to just say that you, you need to take care of the, the physical side. Be aware of the physical side in your own life. But let's talk more, and we're going to focus more on the soul and the spirit side, more of our emotional well-being and our spiritual well-being. And here's the very first thing on your notes, your first fill in the blank. So the cause of anxiety is, number one, doubting that God cares. 
doubting that God cares. Now, you're going to see in this list, this list is both progressive and interrelated. So it builds each one, and they're all interrelated when, it looks, when we look at the cause of anxiety. So doubting that God cares. Did you notice in verse 40b, Martha says, Lord, do you not care? Now, if you were to look at your anxiety, if you were to not just look at your anxiety, but if you were all to look at our tendency to sin is rooted in the doubting of God's goodness. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, Genesis 3. Why would Adam and Eve eat of the tree that they were told not to eat from because they doubted the goodness of God. They thought that God was holding out on them. They thought that they were smarter than God. They thought that they knew better than God. And it all came back to the fact of whether or not they trusted God's goodness. We become, we become anxious because we begin to start doubting God's goodness. And then we begin to take a path that's outside of God's will for our lives, outside of God's word, because we're doubting his goodness. We don't think we, he, has his, he has our best interest at heart. And I want you to notice how God, how how Jesus responds to Martha, verse 41. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Now, in Semitic language, the doubling of a word means magnification. For instance, in Genesis 14, some kings are fleeing from a battle and fall into a very large pits, and in the Hebrew, it says they fall into very, uh, very large, it didn't say very large pits, it says they fall into pit pits. It's kind of, <laughs> that's in the Hebrew, it's kind of, it's fascinating as you study that Old Testament in Hebrew, New Testament in the Greek. And so in 2 Samuel 18, David hears of his son's death, and he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. So that doubling really speaks of of magnification. Luke 22, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to take you under my wings as a mother hen takes her chicks. And so what's fascinating about this is that Jesus is counseling Martha out of, out of deep love and tremendous compassion. So what does that have to do with us? Well, this is what it has to do with us. I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's beautiful. You struggle with anxiety? You struggle with worry? Do you get stressed out? as maybe like Martha here, become a little bit of a control freak. Jesus doesn't come to us to lecture us. He comes to love us. It's his love. It's his tenderness. See, that's what we need more than anything. Have we not more often been brought to tears of repentance by undeserved kindness than by a severe rebuke? Yes, absolutely. In fact, that's what we need more than anything. Listen to me. Listen to me. Everybody look up here. Do you have any idea how much he cares about you? The God of the galaxies? The creator, the sustainer of the heavens and the earth? He cares about you. No one loves you more. Listen to me. No one loves you more than him. And when you rest in his love, I'm telling you, it's going to eliminate the anxiety and the stress. You can just rest. You can rest. You can just say, ah, God, thank you. I know you're going to look after me. You're going to take care of me. I rest in you. I mean, the the Bible's packed full. That's what the Bible's trying to convey to us. I mean, I can give you some verses here. You got uh, Psalm 8 where the psalmist is saying, uh, when he talks about the one who 
put the stars and the moon in place? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man, that you care for him, that God would think thoughts about me and that he actually cares about me? That's spectacular. That's amazing. Oh, oh, it's gotta be more than a concept. It's gotta be a reality in your heart. It's gotta be something you've gotta experience deep in your heart. And believe me, believe me, it will chase the anxiety away as you begin to rest in the reality of that. First Peter 5, 7. First Peter 5, 7, he says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Romans 2, 4 says, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And of course, so if you doubt his, his goodness, if you're doubting that God cares, it's gonna create internal restlessness. You're inter- that's, oh, that's the next fill in the blank on your notes. There it is. You guys ready? There it is, right up there. Internal restlessness. If you wanna know why you're so restless, our hearts are forever restless until we find our rest in, in God. See, you can see it, spiritual alienation, the spiritual alienation, doubting God's goodness, taking life into our own hands, trying to control things, creates internal restlessness. We got this internal restlessness in us. Look at verse 41. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Take a look at your notes. I defined those two words for you. In the Greek, anxious means torn into pieces and pulled in many directions. Do you ever feel like that? Oh, yeah. You get too many plates spinning, too many things going on, too many irons in the fire, too much stuff going on. I get just, you just start feeling like you're pulled to every which way. You get anxious, torn into pieces, pulled in many directions. Then you're troubled, tossed along like a capsized boat which is being pushed along in a stream instead of being able to power itself. The, the really idea there is you're, not, you're just reacting. You're, you're not being proactive in, in your life. You're just reacting. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying here, he's, he's saying to Martha, he says, Mary has chosen one thing and you, you have to have 30 things in order to be happy. Don't you see what's going on, Martha? So much of your happiness is, is based on your circumstances and if my kids are doing well and then if my job's going good and then all the bills are paid and all these things are in order, then, then you're happy. But why would you base your happiness on circumstances? That's what he's saying. Your restlessness is due to the fact that you don't think I've got your best interest at heart. Philippians 4, 6 through 8, it's one of the cross-references I gave you there. I love those verses. Paul, he's in prison. He's writing this while he's in prison. He says, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You can tell that you've given them to God because you have a peace that guards your heart and mind, that there's no circumstance. Now, that would be easy if... You know, I mean, we would think, well, of course you can be peaceful because you're in a Hyatt, you know, hotel on the high rise on San Diego Beach and you're really happy. But that's not the case with, with Paul when he's writing. He's, he's in prison. And yet he's saying, hey, 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 listen, you don't, I'm not anxious and you don't need to be anxious either. But if you'll take it to God and come to him and connect with him, you can rest in his goodness. He has your best interest at heart and it will take care of that inner turmoil, that internal restlessness. We talked about it last weekend. Remember we talked about loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and how we don't actually do that to the degree that we should and it creates all sorts of problems in our lives. We fall short of that. That's part of the, the first of the two great commandments. 
Love God, love people. You guys familiar with that? You guys with me? Okay, okay, just wanna make sure. And so, so it starts off, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is what I said, now see if you can, see if you can track with this. So when it says to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it means to love God so much that you are content in every circumstance because you always have what you most want, and that is God. That's a heavy thought. But none of us really live to that level because we forget who it is that's with us, that loves us, that cares for us. And we doubt his goodness and we begin to take life into our own hands. Now I'm not saying that there aren't things that we're responsible for, but we tend to kind of overdo it. We try to play God. And that's a little bit of what we see happening in Martha's life and that's what creates the stress and the strain in our life. And of course, this is gonna create an irritability with others. Can you see the progression? That's the third on your fill in the blank. So you got spiritual alienation. I doubt God's goodness. This creates internal restlessness. That's psychological alienation going on inside of me. And immediately it's gonna create this irritability with others. That's a social kind of alienation. Verse, verse 40c, did you notice what Martha says? She's demanding the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Tell her to help me. I like what James 4, 1 through 4 says. And, and by the way, this is really a great lesson in, in just conflict resolution. If you want to be good in conflict resolution, you've got to learn this. You've got to learn this. We, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the resolving of anger here just a, a little bit. But we, I, uh, we did a, a series over a year ago on relationships, a mess worth making. Relationships, a mess worth making. And the second week of that six-week series uh, was resolving conflict. So I'm going to just give you a glimpse of that. You'll need to go to that series and download the message, listen to the message, or, or get our DB app and listen to it. But James 4, 1 through 4, talks about what causes the conflict among you. And he goes on and, and really basically says the same thing. It's internal restlessness because of our desires. We're internally restless, which creates... And, and the internal restlessness is due to your doubting that God cares. You're not coming to him and receiving from him so that there's no longer that internal restlessness and therefore no longer that irritability with others. The irritability is due to the internal restlessness, which goes back to your doubting God's goodness. Now, you've got to learn a little bit of how you're wired up and how you deal with uh, difficulties in life. And there's two basic ways that we deal with, with anger, hurt, heartache, different things in life. There's, there's those that deal with it with open aggression, and then there's passive aggression. How many know what I'm talking about when I say open aggression and, and passive aggression? All of us, kind of in a general way, fit into one of those two categories. Both of these are wrong ways of dealing with anger, by the way, and irritability. When we get kind of irritable because of the restlessness inside, disconnected with God. And so the open aggression, I call it the gunslinger. They're, they typically are, they're blunt, they're forceful, they're loud, they're opinionated. You don't need to guess what, the, what they're thinking and feeling because they will let you know, okay? You guys know what I'm, who I'm talking about? You guys know exactly who I'm talking about. Are you, anybody in your family like that? Gunslingers? Yeah, the gunslingers, they come in with guns blazing and then they wait to see who's still standing after the dust has settled. Okay, does that make sense? So, so I'm more, that's me. Mine is more open aggression. It's like, you tick me off, I'm gonna let you know, okay? 
And I don't do it as much anymore because my wife has helped me with this because she's the opposite. She's more of this passive aggression. So how many would be classified more as the gunslinger? Gunslinger, gunslingers? Okay, okay. Not enough of you are raising your hand in here. And, it, and either it's because you're really perfect in every way or I, you're the next one. And there's, more, there, and, and there's more people here that are the next one here. Now, gunslingers, what's interesting about conflict, when they get into conflict, they let people know and, and let them have it, and then they feel better. But everybody else doesn't, okay? Everybody else feels bad because they just unload it on you. But the, the next one would be the passive ag- aggression type person. I call this the Eskimo. It's the silent treatment. They soak, they pout, they ignore, they freeze you out, they give you the cold shoulder, they hope that you will die and go away or something. <laughs> okay? Yeah, that's just kind of like, that's how my wife was. I could always tell that I, had, I probably stepped over the boundary or did something or said something because it was like, I come home from work and she's changed all the locks on the house, okay? <laughs> and I was like, what is that about? It's like, it's, she didn't even tell me that she was upset. She showed me that she was upset. So that's kind of more of that, more, more passive aggression. How many are in that category? Okay. See, there's a lot of you that didn't even identify with either one of these, and that troubles me. Because you're confused, aren't you? And some of you, I, I think if you really were to look at your life, we tend to go back and forth between the two. Because at home, I was more open aggression. At work, passive aggression. I don't want to get fired. That's so schizophrenic. I mean, I mean, it's, it, it, when you think about it, it's like, what the heck? It's like, that's so much pretense going on there. It's like, man, you just let, it, let everybody have it at home, and then you come to work. It's like, oh, he's the nicest guy in the world. My wife, my wife would go, no, he isn't. You ought to live with the dude. Okay, enough there. And so, so let, let me just, you, have, you need to be in touch with your irritability level. And you need to know how do you, you deal with it, whether you deal with it in open aggressive or you're passive in your aggression. So let me give you a quick uh, Quick test, quick test, see where you might be. This is called an IQ, not, uh, not intelligent quotient, but irritation quotient, okay? When driving, how often do you use your horn? Number one, rarely if ever. Number two, as needed at least once a day. Number three, it is the most used part of my car. <laughs> Along with hand gestures, okay? Okay. At a restaurant, how often do you complain about food? Number one, never. Number two, only if it's cold and there are too many bugs in it. (laughs) Number three, regularly, and I go out to my car and honk the horn until they get it right. (laughs) Here's the next one. While waiting in an express checkout line at the supermarket, I, number one, meditate quietly or visualize world peace. Number two, count to see if anyone has more than 12 items. Number three, threaten anyone who looks as if they're going to use coupons. And so, you gotta be in touch. Now I know that I wasn't always in touch with my open aggression. So I'd be driving down the road, and I'd look over, my wife's white knuckling the dashboard, and then she'd look over at me and she goes, is everything okay? Like, yeah, of course everything's okay. Why do you ask? It's like, <laughs> just the way you responded. 
And, and then she would respond by saying, well, it's because you just ran three cars off the road back there. That's why I'm asking. Are you okay? So sometimes you actually need people that are open enough to say, hey, you okay? You okay? What's going on? Let's talk about this. Let's work through that. So that's that. And so as you get in touch with that, you need a cure. And here's the cure. It's found in verses 1 through 4, the art of prayer. Jesus is teaching on prayer as a response to Martha's stress. And so learning to sit at Jesus' feet is the cure. So I want us to explore this just for a minute. So what does that mean to sit at Jesus' feet? To sit at Jesus' feet was a technical expression in ancient times to indicate the relationship between the disciple and the rabbi. See, disciples were not with their rabbis just during formal teaching times, but they were with their rabbis everywhere they would go and everything that they would do. So it's just being with your rabbi, watching how your rabbi does life and following him in that. That's that's, uh, that idea. So it was a lifestyle decision of always being with your rabbi. So what Jesus is saying to Martha Martha, Mary has chosen a lifestyle of being with me and learning from me to be like me. Let me give you the next fill in the blank on your notes. So, the cure to anxiety is this. Peace is not the absence of problems, but practicing the presence of Christ. It's not the absence of problems, but practicing the presence of Christ. The world's peace is sporadic based on the ever-changing circumstances, but Christian peace is constant based on the never-changing presence and love of Christ. I mean, we often forget, if you're a believer in Christ, don't we often forget who it is that walks through our day with us, never to leave us or forsake us, always to lovingly lead us? Now, what's fascinating about verses 1 and 2, when the disciples come to Jesus and ask Ask him, teach us how to pray. We want that same connection that you have with the Father. Jesus has made God's presence scandalously available to anyone who wants it. I was studying a couple weeks ago back in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And there's two key verses there that really talk about being content in all circumstances, how to find that contentment. And the key is these two verses. One's found in the verse 13. And so it's Philippians 4, 13 and then Philippians 4, 19. Some of you are familiar with verse uh, 13, though. See if you know this verse. I can do all Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then verse 19, it says, um, he says, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory through Christ Jesus. So it's, it's fascinating. Paul's writing this in prison in the context, as he's talking about, I've learned to be content no matter the circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is he talking about? He's talking about practicing the presence of God. Oh, and by the way, he's going to take care of all my needs. I'm in prison. Yeah, it's, it's a hardship, but God's with me. He's going to take care of me. Do, do you know his presence like that? Peace is not the absence of problems, but the practicing the presence of Christ. We've been... Uh, 
On Wednesday nights, we've got two more nights. We've been going through this class on intimacy with God. I just absolutely love it. And I, this is my favorite part of being a Christian is intimacy with God and learning to practice his presence. And there's a book two weeks ago that I quoted from and we went through a number of the quotes from this book. It's Brother Lawrence from Practicing the Presence of God. It's a book I, I typically always take on every vacation I go on because it's just one of those books to kind of recalibrate and help me to get back to that place of really understanding the presence of God in my life. This guy, Brother Lawrence, was a 17th century monk who found incredible delight in the discipline of practicing the presence of God in the most, in the most menial and mundane and even menacing times in his life. Listen to what he says here. I'm gonna just share with you these quotes. He says this, the most holy and necessary practice in our spiritual life is the presence of God. That means finding pleasure in his divine company, speaking humbly and lovingly with him in all seasons at every moment without limiting the conversation in any way. I don't know of a better, sweeter life than an unbroken conversation with God. God's presence has become so much a part of my life that it has become the source of non-stop comfort and peace. In fact, for the past 30 years, the joy has been so intense that once in a while, I've had to tone it down around people who wouldn't understand. That's good. Oh my goodness. I want that, I want that for you. I elaborated on it a little bit more. Next, fill in the blank on your notes. So this is what this means. The sitting at Jesus' feet, this whole idea, this concept. This is about always being with Jesus so that we can continually learn from Jesus how to be fully like him in every circumstance of life. So verses three through four, is he's given us the Lord's Prayer. But if you look at the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer covers every aspect of life. So he's really wanting us to, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, then to take this with us as we go throughout the day and, and manage all the different things in our lives. I began to think about what does that mean and, and where else does it talk about that? Well, John chapter 15 talks about abiding. I put that as your cross-reference there. Abide, abide, abide. What does that mean? That's, that's a little bit of practicing the presence of God. John 15, 1 through 17 uses the word abide 11 times. And what does that mean? It means to make your home in his love and truth. Reflecting on it, saturating ourselves in it, experiencing it, and standing in awe of it. So the key to overcoming inordinate anxiety is not, not to grit your teeth, try harder, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, come on, you can do this. It's, it's none of those things. The key to overcoming inordinate anxiety is to make your home in his love and truth. It's practicing his presence. You're just not aware of the one who's with you, never to leave you or forsake you. That's, that's the whole idea. You need to cultivate that within your life, within your heart, and understand what you have in him. Make your home in him. Make your home in him. There should be times in your throughout the day where you just, you feel like he just kind of sweeps you up into his arms and, and loves on you. You have a sense of his presence that's just overwhelming. He, he loves you. And you hear ringing in your heart the words, you're my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's what we need. Believe me, <laughs> you have that experience from the God of the galaxies 
You're not going to be stressed out. He's for us. He's not against us. And that's, that's part of that. I mean, that, that, that will chase away the anxiety, the worry, the stress. And, and by the way, the basis of it is number three on your notes, under the cure to anxiety. So here's the basis. Here's the foundation. So the more you live in the reality that your salvation is by grace, and when I say salvation, I'm talking intimacy with God. I'm talking my sins are forgiven. My present problems can be managed because he indwells me with his Holy Spirit. My future is secure in him. Okay, and so it's, it's, it's that and much more. And it's by God's grace. By, the word grace is more than just unmerited favor. We've got his favor. It's actually the word grace is... Um, it's his empowering presence in our lives. I mean, what's the best thing that God gives to us? It's his presence. It's his presence. It's intimacy with him. And so, and so it's his empowering presence enabling us to be what he wants us to be to do what he wants us to do. I've got his presence. And so the more you live in the reality that your salvation is by grace, not your works, not your performance, the more you'll have an inner peace and grateful joy that empowers the greatest works. So who's, who has that in this story? Mary or Martha? Mary seems to have that, but Martha doesn't. In fact, when you read through the New Testament, you see this part of uh, the introduction of Paul wrote two-thirds of the, of the New Testament, and you see this introduction in all of his letters. And I, I counted at least 16 times he uses grace and peace, grace and peace. Why grace and peace? Because when you understand God's grace, oh my goodness, you're going to have peace, not just with God, but the peace of God that guards your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. So if you're struggling with peace, got to get back to his grace. You got to understand his grace, live in the reality of his grace, abide in him. It's not based on your performance. Oh, oh, you, you know, you're evil. Don't you know that? You are evil. It's not based on your performance. It's based on his performance and what he's done for you. He's given us access into the throne room of God. The bridge across the chasm of sin is Christ. Yeah, there's a, there's a chasm that separates us from God. It's called sin, and Jesus bridged that with his life, death, and burial, and resurrection. So we have access, and that's the whole idea, grace and peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. So doubt, restlessness, and irritability are evidence that Martha is working for, not from her relationship and identity in Christ. She's not working for Jesus, but for herself so that she can feel better about herself. See, we are called to be worshipers first and workers second. We're called to sit at Jesus' feet to realize all that we have in him. And then from that, then we, then we work. Worship God before you work, and you'll worship God in your work. You flip the order, it becomes religion. Religion is all about earning. The gospel is all about embracing and accepting all that he's provided for us. So how do you know, the, know whether or not you're a Martha or a Mary? How do you know whether you're a Martha or a Mary? This is going to be a little bit of a trouble for some of you because you didn't even know whether or not you were open or passive in your aggression. So this might be a little bit easier for you. How do you know whether you are a Martha or a Mary? Look at your prayer life. Is there never any time for a prayer life? Then you're a Martha. When you do have a prayer life, is it just bringing God your to-do list? Or is it only when you're in trouble? 
Do you pray to get more of God? See, that would be more, more Mary. Do you pray to get a sense of his presence? That you've had a taste of his presence and oh my goodness, you want more of him. You long to know him and to experience him. Do you read the scriptures to really listen for him to speak to you? Do you long to hear his voice at the depth of your being? Now there's two ways of being a Martha. One has never really had a personal, maybe you never really had a personal relationship with Christ. And you're, you find yourself, you were extremely affected by your spiritual environment. You went to a church, you grew up in a church, you went off to college and you don't have a faith anymore. You just kind of done your own thing. And, and uh, because you're so highly influenced, and we all are somewhat to a certain degree highly influenced by our environment. But if you really truly have an intimacy with him, even when you go into an, a negative environment, you're not going to lose that intimacy with him. You're going to continue to pursue that and make that part of your life. So maybe you don't really know Christ. And I would encourage you this morning, acknowledge your sin that separates you from God. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and confess him as Savior. Come into this, this relationship with him, this intimacy with him. Understand what the gospel means. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have everlasting life. Have, have this relationship with him. It's amazing. Okay, that's, that's the first way, two ways of being a Martha. Maybe you didn't really have a relationship with him. But then there's the second way. You, you've, you have a relationship with Christ, but you're going through a Martha season. Your prayer life is very weak. You know what it's like to sit at his feet, but it's been a while. Well, today you're being called back. Come back. Experience what it means to, to sit at his feet, to know his presence. Now, how do you do that? What does that look like? Well, this is the next part. This is the application. Application. The confidence in overcoming anxiety. So how do we do that? And, 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 and this is really the heart of prayer and uh, so let me ask you this question. I'm gonna have you discuss it with the folks sitting around you real quick and then we're gonna dive into to this and we'll finish up. So, so what does it mean? What is spiritual growth? What is spiritual growth? Because that's what this is about. How can I grow in what we're talking about here? So that if I, if I grow spiritually, then this will help to eliminate this anxiety, worry, and stress in my life. How do I do that? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. What is spiritual growth? See if they know the answer to that question. What is spiritual growth? Okay, you guys ready? Did you get the answer? If you were saying something along these lines, spiritual growth is becoming more like Christ, I would say, hey, that's, that's pretty right on, but you're a little bit short, okay? You're a little bit, you've fallen short of that because it's more than that because that's actually symptomatic of something much deeper. Here's what spiritual growth is. Spiritual growth is about increasing my capacity to experience the presence of God. That's spiritual growth. 
Spiritual growth is through, why do we do the spiritual disciplines? We read our Bible, we pray, we do all that because we want to connect with him and we want to increase our capacity to experience more of him because that's our issue, that's our problem. And, and I, I doubt his goodness in my life. It creates this restlessness within me and it creates irritability with, with those around me. And so if I can increase my capacity to experience his presence in my life, so how do I do that? Here it is. Settle your family status that you're a child of God. Verses 11 through 12, he says, what father among you if his son asks for fish will give him a serpent? So to become a Christian is an immediate legal status change to being God's child. You either are or you're not. And you've heard me say this before, let me say it again because I think it's important because oftentimes I'll ask people, they say, so say, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And they'll say, I'm trying. It's like, you're trying? You either are or you aren't. Knock that trying stuff off, okay? Enough of that trying. Are you a Christian? And see, the, the appropriate response would be something along those lines. Yeah, I am. I confess Jesus is my Savior. I really struggle a lot, but I know that he will never leave me or forsake me. And I can't believe that I'm a Christian. It's by his grace. I'm a mess, but he's my Savior, and he's going to take care of me. So that would be a good answer, okay, right there. Okay? That, see, see what, what I'm saying is that when you say, I'm trying, it's like, almost like you're in or you're out or you're back and forth. And There's no like, either you're a child of God or you're not a child of God. Are you a child of God? Then live in the reality of what you have in him because it's out of this world. So if you've made that decision for Christ and you've said, yeah, I want to follow him. I acknowledge my sin. I believe he died on the cross for my sin. I've confessed him as my savior. Then do it. <laughs> Follow through. Live it. Enjoy it. Oh, my goodness. And if you haven't, if you haven't made that confession of faith, good night. What's keeping you? That's crazy. If you understood what I understand about the gospel, you're not going to let anything keep you from him and knowing him and experiencing him. That's a fact. That's a fact. And what that is, is you just doubt his goodness. You don't really believe he's got your best interest at heart. Otherwise, you would be running in his direction, wanting him more than anything in this world. And so that's, you need to settle your family status that you're a child of God. And this is, and I shared this two weeks ago, and I'm a parent, I'm a grandparent, and this is what he's wanting to get across here. No parent on earth wants the best for their child as much as your father in heaven What's the best for you? Everybody look up here. Everybody look me in the eyes. I gotta s That's for everyone in this place. There's no parent, there's no parent on this planet that wants the best for their child. Even though they are evil, even though they are evil, they want the best for their children. Even more so does your Father in heaven want the best for you. That goes for every one of us. If that could go from your head Concept to a reality in your heart, it would change everything about you. That goes for everybody in the breezeway, too. We got a bunch, bunch in the breezeway or a few in the breezeway, so that goes for you guys, too. Settle your family. This would be the best thing you could do each and every day. Just settle your family status that you're a child of God every day. I'm your child. I'm your beloved child. You love me. So God, help me to live in the reality of that today. Does that make sense? I mean, that's before your feet even hit the floor in the morning. You should be just 
savoring that and enjoying that. That's a fact. That's a fact. Now, now the experience of that varies, but the reality of that objectively is true based on God's word. Now, here's the next one. Okay, we got to keep rolling. Number two, rejoice in your unlimited access to, to Abba Father's undivided attention, unconditional affection, and unhindered action. Verses eight through 10. He gives us a story of you going to a friend. If you go to a friend at midnight and ask for bread, and then it says in verse eight, yet because of his impudence, pesty persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So he's saying ask, seek, and knock. So let me give you this analogy, see if this makes sense to you. So what he's really trying to us to understand is that the only person who dares wake up a king or a president at 3 a.m. in the morning for a glass of water is the king's or president's wife? Not hardly. How about his child? Yes, that's the point. That's the point. And we have that kind of access to God, that kind of attention, affection, and action from God. Number three, pray for increased spiritual reality of God's presence. Verses nine through 10, when Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock, he's saying, this is what he's saying. As soon as you fill in the blank, look up here. You gotta get this. Gotta get it. Gotta get this. He's almost like he's giving us a blank check here. He's saying, here's a blank check. Ask for the stars. Ask for the moon. And if you, if you have any idea of what you need most and what I wanna give to you, then you would ask for, you would ask for the Holy Spirit. Because that's what I want to give to you, the Holy Spirit. Why? Whoa, that's not quite what I was thinking about. I was thinking more like career and relationships and money in the bank account. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's, you're aiming way too low. Because did you notice how he ends? He says, that, he says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Holy Spirit? Yes, yes, yes. Listen. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit will give you a love, joy, peace, a wisdom, character that all the success in this world can never give to you and all the suffering in this world can never take from you. If you have his Holy Spirit, like what he's saying to ask for, you can face anything. And so we have the Holy Spirit if we've made a confession of faith in Jesus, but we need what? Pray for increased spiritual reality of God's presence. By the way, when Paul prays for the folks that he's writing to who are under the gun, they're, they're experiencing terrible persecution, he never, prays, he never prays circumstance enhancement prayers, which there's nothing wrong with that, but he always prays for increased spiritual reality of God's presence. Here's the next one, number four. Let life's disappointments drive your heart deeper into God's love. Verse 41, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Now, Jesus doesn't give Martha her prayer request. Jesus doesn't give to Martha what she was asking for because it was the very thing that was keeping her from intimacy with him. She was asking for a serpent or a scorpion. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. Let me say that again, okay, because I don't think you got that one. I, I think some of you just kind of dozed off there just for a minute. So come back, come back, come back. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. Nothing will satisfy you more than knowing him. And there's nothing that can rob you of intimacy with God 
except idolatry. And idolatry is having your heart and imagination captivated by anything other than God. And that's what's happened to Martha. And Jesus is lovingly bringing her back to him because disappointments are God's appointments with us so that we can replace our counterfeit gods with him. And so number five, schedule daily appointment with God for disciplined attention and affection. And we see this, verse 40, my sister has left me to serve alone. Obviously, she had been serving, Mary had served, but she had her limits and she had good boundaries, and so she's now sitting at Jesus' feet. We need to learn to do the same. Now, next weekend, we're gonna talk about the difference between behavioral modification and heart transformation. Behavioral modification heart transformation, moralism versus the gospel. A lot of Christians don't know the difference. We're gonna look at the power of the gospel to transform our lives, how it does that. It's not moralism. The gospel is not moralism. Something totally different. You'll need to come back and we'll talk about it next week. Jesus always referred to God as his father throughout his life in prayer and ministry except one time. And that was when he was on the cross. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because Jesus prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can cry with confidence, Abba, Father, my Daddy. Jesus got what we deserve so that we would get what he deserves. Let's pray. So God, we, <laughs> we are amazed that we can have intimacy with you through Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith in him. God, there's just so often we doubt, we doubt that you care for us and it creates an internal restlessness and irritability with others. And so God, help us to regularly and daily to settle our, our family status that we're your children and that we would learn to rejoice in our unlimited access to you and pray for increased reality that it would go from our head to our heart and that we would see our, our disappointments as, as appointments with you to get to know you, to draw our hearts closer to you. But more importantly, God, let us daily schedule appointments with you so that we can give you our disciplined attention and affection so that we can increase our capacity for experiencing you for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. Love you guys.